about any uh, passage of scripture, an idea in the Bible, whatever it might be, and, uh, and I have to deal with it. And so there have been some great questions. Uh, I make that sound like there were some bad ones. They were all good. Uh, some were, were some things that I haven't considered as much before. And so I think those were helpful for me, and I hope they were helpful for you. Uh, and this morning, we're finishing that up next week. Um, I don't know if I should say this to see if people actually come back. Uh, I have to preach a sermon that I wrote for a seminary class, and it's very long. I'm just kidding. We're going to shorten it down, but uh, it did have to be very long for the seminary class. But So we're going to talk about uh, relationship conflict tomorrow. So it's not practical for anybody here, I'm sure. Uh, nobody here has any conflict of any kind in your families or with your friends, uh, but uh, uh, we all do, right? And so it'll be very helpful and practical, I hope. Uh, and, then, and then the week after, as Lori said, we're back. It's the 19th. It's kickoff Sunday. We are encouraging you uh, to invite somebody that doesn't attend church. Uh, let them know that this is kind of a kickoff. We're going to have fun together. We're going to sing some songs. Uh, we're going to open some scripture, you know, the normal stuff that we do, but it'll be a little bit uh, shorter, a little bit um, the preacher won't be so long as normal. And, uh, and just invite your friends. It'll be a great, great time. So, with all that being said, let me tell you why this question popped in. About a month ago, give or take, somebody had asked a question about medical assistance and dying. And so we talked about that, and we looked at uh, some of the aspects around that, and, and again, I did not give any you know, concrete answer, but I hope I framed it with a biblical perspective so that as we consider some of those things that are, in, that are happening in our culture, that we don't just go with whatever culture is... is talking about, but that we go, hang on, let me go to Scripture and see what Scripture says about this. Because clearly, a lot of issues that we face right now, the very specific issue is not talked about in Scripture. But the principles are. And so we looked at that, and, and in that I talked about Job, and we talked about a biblical perspective of suffering. And then after that sermon, someone came up to me and kind of asked about Job a little bit more, and, uh, and I did my standard answer, is you can't ask me a question and expect me to remember it for the next week. So I said, you have to email me or, or text me or phone me or something when I'm in the office so I can write it down. And so here's the question that came in. They're not here, so I can do this. It's okay. It says, the book of Job, what is it all about and why is it relevant to us? Dash, a sonnet by Greg Unruh. I'm not smart enough to know what a sonnet really is, but if it means really long sermon, then, then this person will be in luck. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Job, what is it actually about, and why is it applicable to us, or why is it relevant to us? And I love this question because they're assuming in that what is it actually about means that they think it's maybe about something other than what they're reading. And that's good. Because that means we're reading things in depth. And so I want you to open there. We're going to discuss it. Uh, and we're going to look at actually what the major theme of Job is. Now, I did use Job to talk about suffering. And a biblical perspective of suffering. And that's certainly in there. So don't hear me say that that's not um, relevant in Job. It is. But I don't think it's the main theme at all, actually. I think it's something else. And as we talked about just a few moments ago in between songs... I think what the book of Job is about, and we'll show that as we walk through this, is that ultimately the book of Job is about justice. Whether or not God is just, and whether we actually, as people, even understand what justice is. And as a byproduct, what mercy also is. 
So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's open. Uh, I'm going to try and go through this as quickly as I can because we could just read the whole book and then spend hours talking about it. Um, but we're going to try and get through this in kind of a normal time. So let's read the first 12 verses to kind of give us a framework of what's happening. It says this, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was also among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answers the Lord and said, does Job, not, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out his hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went away from the presence of Job. Sorry, from the presence of the Lord. So in this book of Job, right, this is, this is a bizarre scene. This is very unusual in Scripture. And so as we're kind of reading through this, what we see is that there's this man, Job, who is exceedingly godly, upright. God himself says about Job, there's nobody else like him. This man has integrity. Well, then Satan and the angels come present themselves before God at some point here, and, and, and God asks rhetorically, right, where have you come from? And he says, and then, and then there's this really bizarre dialogue where, where God actually says, have you considered Job? In other words, have you considered oppressing him? And we as the reader are looking at this and going, hang on, this is weird. Like, what is God doing? This isn't fair. This isn't good. All of a sudden, um, Satan is, is trying to afflict it. And basically, he, he says to God, the only reason he serves you is because you've given him everything he could possibly want. So the only reason that he loves you is because of the blessings that you've given him, not because of the relationship that you have. And so... We as the reader kind of read that and, and we kind of perhaps, I don't want to point fingers, but perhaps we look at this and we go, okay, there's this cause and effect type of uh, language being used here. And for Satan, he says, if this, then this. And if we're really honest, we all do that in all areas of our life all the time. Cause and effect. We think this is what's going to happen or we, we do this and we think this is what's going to happen. In fact, we expect those things to the point where our culture has used a little word that we often say. And what is that word? Karma. 
Whatever, if you put good out into the universe, good will come back. If you put bad out, bad will come back. However, every single one of us has gone through a season of our life where we have seen that to be not true. Where we have experienced blessings when we shouldn't have. When God gave us mercy when we didn't deserve it. And vice versa. In that, and that's his logic. God, Job would not serve you if that was taken away. And then God responds in this way that makes us, the reader, just scratch our heads again because he goes, he goes, okay, go ahead, try. That's my paraphrase, but right, that's what we see there is God goes, go ahead and try. And so I think it's, it's good if you read that and you feel a little bit indignant. I think it's good if you read that and you go, God, why would you do that? Because then we're starting to ask some questions and we're going to explore who is God. What is he all about? So we get upset. Like I said, the major point of Job is exploring justice. Is God really just? And do we even understand what justice is? The problem with the book of Job is not as much the problem with the book, but the way in which we approach the book is predominantly there's this view out here that Job is really about bad things happening to good people. And so then we look and we read and we search for the answer of why do bad things happen to good people? And we explore and we read through and we turn the pages and we get to the end and what do we find out? There's no answer for that. It's not given and so we're left going, this was a bit of a letdown of a book. Because we're projecting our assumption about what the book is on there, but the biblical author is not concerned about that, at least not primarily. He's concerned about justice. He's concerned about showing that God is, in fact, just. And the process that Job goes through, which we're going to explore here a little bit, quite briefly, but we're going to explore it, shows that Job, that his friends, that everyone there, doesn't actually understand what justice is, and they're misrepresenting God, and they're making false accusations against God and his character. Did I already answer why it's relevant to us? We'll get back to that one. So when we read God uh, allows Satan to do this, and we see at the end, in, uh, at the end of chapter 1, that, in ver- let's do verse 20, 21, 22. After all this has happened, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan challenges God and God says, you think you know, but you don't. And is he trying to prove to Satan that or is he trying to show us that? I would argue he's already shown that to Satan when he cast them out of heaven. So here we have, Job does not sin. And so Satan doubles down and goes, okay, fine, fine. Uh, but, if, but if you attack him, his body, his health, if you, if you make it about his personal intense physical suffering, then he will curse you to your face. And you're kind of thinking as the reader, God already proved this point. He doesn't have to do this. And God says, yeah, go ahead. And we again are going, why would God do that? That doesn't seem fair or right. And so as we read through chapter 2, 
We see all of this is struck down on him, and it says in verse 8, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape these boils while he sat in the ashes because he was in so much suffering. I don't think very many of us have experienced that kind of suffering. Now, perhaps you have gone through a very difficult season of suffering, and perhaps you can relate. Here, what we then read in verses 9 and 10 says this, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I say this all the time. Is the one person left by Job's side through all of this is the one person who should be there to help build him up and is the one who's tearing him down. Just imagine that. Are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. Just be done. Just move on. What does Job respond? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And what we have moving forward now is Job kind of laments his birth and his, he's in deep suffering and, and he wishes he was never born. And I'm sure many of us have kind of thought that in one of our low moments. And, and then you see this conversation that happened with him and his friends. But one and two, chapters one and two, are vital for us to understand the book because in it, some of the answers are given to us. Is karma a thing? No, because God himself three times in the first two chapters says that Job did not sin in this. This is not divine retribution for something that he did wrong and so God was punishing him for it. It, in fact, tells us the opposite. That is not why it happened. And so we, the reader, and I studied through Job maybe, maybe two months ago on my own. As I was reading through this, I am given that bit of knowledge in chapters one and two. And then what I actually found myself doing is I was reading through the rest of the book and hearing the friends argue and say, well, no, God wouldn't have done this if, and Job saying, but God did, and there's this argument back and forth, and I found myself in the midst of that going, I'm not even sure what's true here, even though I was already given the answer. Because I think when we think about suffering, when we think about pain, when we think about hurt, and when we think, could, how could God be just if this has happened to this person and this has happened to this person? They're not compatible. I don't know how to deal with this. And then we start to compare. We start to go, this isn't fair and God can't be just. And we start to feel sympathy both for Job and his friends throughout the argument of this. And I think that's the point that God is trying to make. He says, I'm already going to give you the answer, but you're so not focused on me, you're so focused on yourself that you're actually going to enter into this conversation and think, maybe they're right, maybe they're right. And this is the crazy part of Job. So, how does mercy and justice blend together? How do we process that? This is the same idea we talked about at a Bible study earlier this week. Is we started to consider this idea of when God shows mercy to somebody else, but then not mercy to us, or we perceive it to not be mercy, does that, in fact, make God not merciful? Well, that doesn't really seem to make sense, right? So when we think about it in, in this context, is if we sin against God, doesn't God have the right to respond how he sees correct? Let's put it more personal. To you, somebody breaks into your house and steals things, and you catch them, you have a choice. Am I going to press charges, or am I going to show mercy? Is there a right or a wrong choice in that moment? 
Or is there, I have to figure out which is more good to do. Sometimes justice needs to happen. And we see that all through the Old Testament. But I would actually argue that the, what we read in the Old Testament, and sometimes we think that God is a God of wrath and vengeance and all these things, is I would actually argue the opposite is true. Is over and over and over and over again, God extends mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy and mercy. And even the discipline and the consequences that do come where he says these are because you have done this, even that is an act of mercy. Why? Because Romans 3.23 reminds us that the wages of sin is what? Death. Not consequence. The wages of sin is death. And if you're a parent, you know that consequence is actually meant to be restorative. Right? It's meant to bring them to a proper relationship. They've done something wrong, they've hurt somebody, and you're trying to bring healing to that. And that's why there's consequences. If there's no consequences for your actions, what happens? Well, hopefully you haven't had to experience that in your household. We're reminded again, Romans 6.23, the way, sorry, I said 3.23 before, it was 6.23. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us are equal. So we all stand condemned and guilty before God already. All of us. So when God extends mercy, he has the right to do that because the sin has been committed against him. David realizes this in Psalm 51.4, right after he has sinned against Bathsheba. This is this beautiful psalm. He writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David realized that ultimately all sin is an affront against God. So God gets to determine how he's going to respond to that. And so as we read through the narrative of the entire Bible, we see that there has to be justice. There has to be. But God continually points forward to say there will be justice. And yes, there's consequences and there's discipline. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But as we go through it, ultimately that justice takes place where? On the cross. When Jesus dies for the penalty for our sins, once and for all, so that sin is now paid for. And that is the greatest act of mercy that exists. And so when we look at it, we go, man, man, it seems like that person received so much mercy. Why didn't I? That's not fair, what does mom and dad say when we're kids? Life isn't because we think we know what fair is. But our perspective is so limited on what is truly just and truly fair. I say this all the time, so pardon it, but for those of you visiting, is in our own minds, we look at it this way, is when we wrong somebody, we want mercy. But when someone wrongs us, what do we want? Then we want justice. And we can't play them both separately like that. What we have to realize is that God occupies both of those spaces, and I don't really understand how both of those are possible and how we can do that, but yet the story of the gospel and of Jesus dying on the cross shows that his justice and his mercy are tied as one. Back to Job. So Job has this lament against his birth, and so through chapters three, uh, sorry, through chapter three, uh, he he basically says, "Why was I born? I wish I hadn't have been born." But then Job's friends kind of enter into the scenes and. Uh, I wish we would all be so lucky to have such wonderful friends, wouldn't we? If you know the book of Job, basically what they do is this. Is Job is, is just, with, he's just distraught, right? And he's hurting. 
and he's suffering. But he suffers a little bit too much for the friend's likeness, and they go, hang on. Everything you're saying, it's garbage. God is obviously just, and so their argument through chapters 4, 5, 6, and so on is, is essentially this, is you must have sinned because God wouldn't have done this to you if you hadn't sinned. But we, the reader, know what? This was not brought on him because he sinned. We already know that. And so what we should see when we read Job's friends responding to this is that they're wrong. We should know that in advance. And so there's this kind of back and forth, and then we get to chapter 8, and here's how they respond. This is uh, the friends to Job. How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Just FYI, never say that to somebody who has lost a child. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you will plead and plead, sorry, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. They literally say, just confess this awful thing that you've done. And when you do that, what's God going to do? Because if you do this, then God does this. They have a very specific, narrow view of what God does. And I think we buy into that logic so often as well when we go, how could this happen to me? How could God do that? And I'm not saying those are wrong questions to ask. I think all through Scripture in Job and the book of Psalms, we see many examples of people wrestling through with that, trying to figure that out, trying to process that. And I think it's good for us to process that. But so what you have then as we get to this place is, is Job's friends go, God is just, so obviously he wouldn't do this unless you deserve it. And then Job starts to go, he doubles down on his innocence. And again, we the reader know it to be true. And so he goes... There's only one other conclusion. God can't be just. So now you have God is obviously just or he wouldn't. And now Job, the one who is the upright one, who has lived his life for God, gets to this place. And this is where that very dangerous logic of cause and effect comes in. And I'm going to take a real quick rabbit trail here, but this is why the prosperity gospel is so, so dangerous. Because what it says is the same thing that the friends adhere to here is if, if you do everything good, then you will be blessed financially, you will be blessed health-wise, and you will prosper. And if your financial blessings are taken away, if your health is taken away, if you cease to prosper, then obviously it is because you have done something wrong. You need to confess that, and then God will restore you. That is the exact opposite message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is that you did not deserve mercy, but you were given it. It's not about you and how awesome you were and how your ability to obey God. In fact, that's Jesus' whole argument against the Pharisees all through that, the Gospels. Is they're trying to prove they deserve a spot in heaven because they've been so righteous. And Jesus says, you don't even understand what righteousness is. So this logic that the friends employ, it is just as rampant, maybe more rampant today, I don't know. But it's wrong. Now, we do have to clarify a couple of things because I already have said that sometimes there are consequences for sin and sometimes there is discipline. But that's different than divine retribution. 
Jesus on the cross is where all sin was paid for, where God's wrath was satisfied. But God is a loving Father who wants to use our lives for His good, and so He is going to discipline us. And that sounds like a bad thing, but it's not. It's good. Paul, in one point, in one point in Scripture, he talks about this idea of he, he beats his body and he makes it his slave. He's trying to accomplish a purpose. And so he disciplines himself so that he can do this. And he talks about it in the sense of an athlete. That an athlete disciplines himself so that he can get more skilled in a certain area. And, and just like with anything in life, if we quit when anything gets hard or when there's consequences, what happens? We never get anywhere. We just stop. We have to persevere. And so when we read through Scripture, we read about God's discipline and that it actually is part of his plan. We'll get there in just a minute. Job continues fighting back and forth, and, and you kind of go through all of this. All of Job is, is essentially this until we get to this place of chapter 32. Chapter 32, a new younger friend pops into the scene, and, and in the text it kind of says because he was younger and the respect that he had for these other three friends, he didn't want to say anything. But as they kept talking, he was getting more and more riled up because they were not representing God well. And so he comes in and he rebukes Job's friends. But he doesn't stop there. Then he rebukes Job too. He says to the friends, like, you don't have any idea about what justice is. And then he rebukes Job and he says, Job, you, you, don't, you can't claim that God is, isn't just because you don't know it. Elihu's conclusion is this. He doesn't understand the specifics of why Job is suffering. But he believes that God has the right to do whatever God sees fit because God alone understands justice. He then says, perhaps... This suffering could be a way of God warning you to avoid future sin. Or perhaps this suffering is a way in which we can grow and mature. And these are the things we've just discussed about discipline. James 1, 2 reminds us of this. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Sorry, meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Elihu has a correct understanding here. Now, he doesn't know why. He doesn't say, this is why. He says, perhaps. Perhaps it's because of this. Perhaps he's trying to look bigger than just his own, or in this case, Job's own situation, and to say, I don't understand everything about God, and that is good. God is completely other. He's completely holy. I can't grasp it, but I believe that God is just, and God is good, and he knows better than we. And then we read in James 1-2, we know that some of this, some of the trials that we go through are meant to strengthen us, are meant to draw us closer to Him, are meant for us to trust in Him more. And that's the simple reality of what we see in our lives, is when we go through great difficulty and pain and suffering, when we hit that place we call rock bottom, what is left to do? Nothing but cry out to God. And those are the moments in Scripture when we see God reach down. And he reaches down lots of other times too. I don't want to make it sound that is the only time. But we so often see God reach down when people come to the end of themselves and they realize that they can't do it. Elihu continues to speak all the way to chapter 38. But in 38, there's this big shift in the book of Job. So it's 
primarily been this conversation of back and forth of Job, you must have sinned. Job saying, no, I didn't. God can't be just. All this arguing. Elihu comes in, talks about these things. And then in chapter 38, what does your heading say? Then the Lord speaks. Now, all Scripture should be important and we should listen to it. But I have this feeling that when we come to a place like that, we should probably slow down, pay a little more attention. The Lord speaks. God says this to Job, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and I will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star sings together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band to prescribe limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and that the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. I think you get the point. He continues on and on, and he goes, Job, how could you accuse me of being unjust when you control so little and have so little understanding? Now, don't mishear this. God is not like being, he, he's not attacking Job and trying to belittle him and show him that he's nothing. He's actually trying to show him the greatness of God. So that he would look at God with this new perspective and understand all of these things that happen around us, when we look at the, the, the nature that exists out here and we see it and we go, how could any of this possibly happen? We should be reminded of God is at work. In fact, in Genesis, it said that God created all things by doing what? By simply opening his mouth and speaking. Last week, Jim Houston came and, and shared with us and talked about the omnipotence of God, the all power that he is. And that's what he's trying to do here for Job. He's trying to say, Job, you are accusing me of things that you know nothing about. Your perspective needs to be changed. And I would argue that chapter 38, where God speaks until he finishes, is actually the mercy of God where he shows Job, look, I'm going to extend your perspective so that you can see who I truly am, at least in part, more than you did know before. And so God continues, and he says to Job all kinds of things. In chapter 40, Job responds, chapter 40, verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. He recognizes in that moment I had no right. But notice God's not quite done yet. He's got a few more things to show him. And so God continues to speak and talks about uh, these creatures, Leviathan, Behemoth, and he talks about like 
the power and the might. And he continues to go on. And then Job answers in 42, 2 to 6. These are probably some of the most important verses for all of us. Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job has a meeting with God. And all these things that Job's told his friends, if I had a meeting with God, here's what I would ask. And here's what I would say. He doesn't say any of that. Because this meeting with God all of a sudden broadens his perspective and he goes, I spoke of things I didn't understand. Please forgive me. Now notice again, an often common misunderstanding in Job is that Job never sinned throughout the entire book, but why would he repent in dust and ashes? Because he recognizes that once he started to accuse God, he was in the wrong. And so he repents. So the story is not of this man who never sins. It's the story of a man who has things happen to him that he thinks are unjust. And at first he responds correctly. But as his suffering increases, he gets to that breaking point and he starts to accuse God. Tim Mackey says this, Underneath the assumption of Job and the others is that God is just. Sorry, that God is just, is a, there is a deeper assumption. And that is, that is this. Job thinks that he has a wide enough perspective to make the claim that he understands how God, how God ought to run the world. I don't think we would ever say that. But how often do we think it? God, why would you do this? Like that, like if I was in control, I would do it this way. That's, a, that's an assault on God's character. That's us saying, I do not trust that you are good. I do not trust that you are just. I do not trust that you know what you're even doing. And if we had a moment like Job does, is we would come face to face with the creator of the universe and we would understand just how little perspective we truly have. Isn't that what growing up is all about? When you're little, your world is little, and you think it's very simple. And then you start to see it's more complex. And then when you become a teenager, you learn that you know everything. And then when you're 21, you learn that you didn't actually know anything that you thought you know, because all of a sudden you have bills to pay, and you don't know how your parents ever did that and fed you at the same time. Right? And we slowly learn and we slowly grow and our perspective widens and all of a sudden we start saying things that our parents said to us that we swore we would never say. Right? Isn't that the way it is? How many of us have been, oh, that was my mom, that was my dad that said that, that I said. And, we get, and then we start to realize maybe they were a lot smarter than we gave them credit for. Maybe they did know. Maybe they did understand. Maybe they did parent in the best way that they could, and maybe they weren't out to just ruin my fun. Right? Like dwelling here a little bit, but I think the point that we can see in this is that God is our Father, and He knows far greater than we could ever imagine. And yet in our youthful ignorance and arrogance, we make the accusation against God, God, you don't know what you're doing. 
you're not just, you're not fair, you're not right. The only time we see in Scripture somebody have this conversation with God, he actually says very little, except I repent. I will not open my mouth again. I will not accuse you any longer. Job responds in humility. And I think we all know this, right? His arrogance always leads us down a bad trail. Humility never goes in a bad spot. We treat others far kinder when we're, when we're humble. When we have humility, we stand before God and we say, God, even though I don't understand, like Elihu, even though I don't understand why this suffering is here, I know that you still walk with me and that you still love me. And that you don't owe me an answer. You don't owe me an explanation. What I owe you is my allegiance because you have forgiven my sin because you are so merciful. That's the response we should be taking out of this. And then just in case, just in case we start to think that maybe we understand differently than Job, we then read the last few verses, and it says in verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And there's some explanation about that. And don't, for one second, think that he did that because Job repented. Because that undoes or undoes everything that the book has just taught us. Just because we repent doesn't mean that God will then bless us so abundantly, at least materially. Because material possessions are far less important to God than our heart, than our soul, and than our eternity with him. Why does God restore Job? Because God is merciful. Because God is just. Why does God restore some and not others? Because God has a wider perspective than we ever could. He gets to make those determinations, not us. And so we need to submit ourselves to the, the foot of the cross. We need to submit ourselves to this understanding that God has created me and there's no possible way that the created can understand the creator in all of his power. And so we step back and we say, God, you are good. And you are just, and even though I don't feel like you're just in this moment, I know that you are. And I repent. And we need to do that often. So what is the book of Job about? The simple reality that I don't even understand what justice is. But I can trust that God does. And I can trust that God is just and merciful. Why is this relevant to us in today's life? Because it's a whole countercultural way of viewing who God is what he is at work and or how he's at work and what he's doing in our lives. We live in a time right now where we're starting to really focus on justice and that's good, but I would argue that it's more important that we instead of thinking how smart we are and what we should be doing is that we go to scripture and we see God, what do you say? God gets to determine how we live. God gets to determine what is right and wrong, and I shouldn't get to go against what scripture says. I saw a little Facebook meme go out, and it was, it, was, it was meant to sound this way. The, the writing says this, we'll ignore the specific sin, but somebody asked, is this sin still a sin? And then somebody commented underneath, I don't think God revised the Bible. And that's the reality of it. 
is we want to redefine justice in our time, and we want to determine this person should get to live that way, and this person should get to live that way, and, and as long as they're not hurting anybody, we make all these very logical conclusions. They make sense to us. But we don't go to Scripture and say, God, what have you said is true and right? To that I will submit. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book, and, and thank you for the complexities in it, and and God, thank you that what we see is not that you are a God who is unjust, but that you are a God who is just and yet merciful, and yet you can do both at the same time. And we can't understand that. We can't grasp that. But God, may we simply step back and say, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, no matter what the suffering is, I'm going to trust in you because in you alone is where I find hope. And you alone is where I find forgiveness of sin. And may we remember that even though we may be suffering right now and in pain and in hurt and great difficulty, is that one day we will be with you for eternity where there will be no more suffering and no more sin. And as Paul said, we don't even count that to be something that we can compare with our present suffering. And so, God, when we go through these moments, would we go back to the book of Job? Would we remind ourselves, not that we need answers from you, but that we can trust in you? God, we love you. Go with us. Continue to teach us. Continue to discipline us that we might become more like your son. Amen.